Well, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. This semester, again, we're talking about Applied Theology or Discipleship 101. That's kind of what we're doing, Discipleship 101. And this morning, we're talking about another spiritual discipline, this time the spiritual discipline of giving. Now, when I say giving, there are lots of different things that you can and should be giving. You should be giving your time and your energy. We talked about that a few weeks ago when we talked about serving. You can give the gospel. We'll actually talk about that here in a few weeks as we talk about a lesson on evangelism and another lesson on on missions. You can give uh, insight, you can give wisdom and those sorts of things. We'll talk about that when we talk about the discipleship. We give correction to our kids. We'll talk about that when we uh, talk about the discipline of, uh, of children. But today we're talking in particular about money. Now we know that some churches love talking about money, right? Just as all ancient roads were said to, to lead to Rome, some pastors think it's their job to take every sermon and somehow get to Malachi 3 in a sermon on tithing, all right? Some churches uh, even go so far as to imply that you can kind of purchase God's blessings. You can purchase health and wealth if you just send in four easy payments of $19.99, get a little you know, prayer tower, something like that that's been blessed, and then you will be healthy and wealthy. And so that kind of error is absurd, and it's pretty obvious. You see that on TBN every day. But there's another way that churches can err when it talks about uh, giving. It's much more subtle, and at first glance, it might even seem like this is the wise and best approach. And that is, instead of talking about money all the time, some churches swing the pendulum too far and just kind of neglect the topic altogether. They just dance around it or ignore it or whatever it might be. And the reasons for that are really obvious. Again, we all know of the charlatans uh, who are <laughs> wolves in pastor's clothing. There's also this fear of being misunderstood. That anytime you talk about giving, people think, oh, you're just in it for my money. There's a fear of uh, offending the masses. And all of these together effectively provide this really strong incentive to just avoid any sort of discussion of giving altogether. And here's why that is a problem. Both of those approaches, whether it's the prosperity gospel, always talking about money, or the never talking about money, here's why that's a problem. Because you can't avoid talking about money without avoiding quite a bit of the biblical text. Right? Jesus talks about money quite a bit. Paul talks about money quite a bit. God talks about money quite a bit. And if Scripture has things to say about money, and it does, then we simply can't ignore those words. No matter how uncomfortable the topic might make us feel, if the mission of the church is to make disciples, and it is, and the, and the church disciples people by teaching its people, quote, to observe all that Christ commanded, And if Christ commands us to give, then it's unfaithful to not talk about that. You can make shallow converts by ignoring the topic of money, but you can't actually make healthy, well-rounded disciples. Because what discipleship is, is teaching people to observe all that Christ commanded. And Christ commands us to think about and to be generous with our money. So remember what discipleship is. Discipleship is the process of being conformed to the image of Christ, who is himself the image of the invisible God. So I want to start by just really kind of orienting us by having us consider the nature and character of God. 
What most shapes us, what most pulls us toward obedience and faithfulness isn't really uh, impersonal rules or impersonal laws or something like that. Rather, what pulls us toward obedience and faithfulness is seeing a picture of beauty. That's what actually compels us to obey. At the end of the day, our hope, our goal should be to be more like Jesus. That's what discipleship entails. So before we talk about anything else, we need to talk about who God is and what he does. And one of the first things that we notice in Scripture is that God gives. God is a giving God. We've talked about this quite a bit when we talked about serving. Christianity is really the only way of understanding God. It's the only religion in which God is the server rather than the served. And thus God is giver rather than the recipient of our gifts. We see that uh, idea kind of all over the Bible. We see God giving all over the place in the Bible. First, our very existence is something that's given to us by God. We're not independent. We are created beings. We didn't make ourselves. We don't cause ourselves to exist. We're given existence. That's an implication of creation. And make no mistake, God was not under any sort of obligation whatsoever to create us. He didn't create us out of some lack or insufficiency or deficiency in himself. He created us out of an overflow of his nature and character. God needs nothing. We do nothing for him. He gets nothing from us. He loves us not because he needs us. He loves us not because we're lovable. He loves us not because we make his existence better. He loves us simply because he is loving. That's it. So he gives to us by making us. But not only that, he also gives to us sustenance. All right, we live in an age uh, where it's easy to, to ignore God's uh, role in provision of our basic necessities, what is historically called providence, right? In previous cultures, rain, for example, was a sign of our dependence on God. If it doesn't rain, we don't eat. Now we have Whole Foods. We have Hutchins, right? Whether it's raining or not, you and I still have food. That doesn't mean we're actually any less dependent on God's provision, just that it's easy for us to deceive ourselves into thinking that we're less dependent. When in reality, we're utterly contingent beings. We just don't see it as clearly as previous cultures did. In fact, we are actually reliant on God for food and for drink, for offspring, for shelter, for rain, for air to breathe, and on and on we could go. Look at Acts 14, 16 through 17. In past generations... He, that's God, allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Or Psalm 145, 15 through 16. If you're memorizing scripture, this would be another thing that I'd put on there, Psalm 145. But in 15 and 16, it says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. So God gives us life. And he also gives us what's necessary to sustain us. In addition to those, he also gives us revelation. As, as mortal, finite beings, we can't really comprehend an infinite, immortal, eternal being unless he condescends to reveal himself to us. But thankfully, he does condescend to reveal himself to us. In fact, he does so in two different ways. The first is what is called natural relation, natural revelation. 
That's the revelation of God that we see in creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Or as Romans 1 says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So according to Romans 1, the problem with mankind isn't that God hasn't revealed himself. He has revealed himself absolutely in creation. In fact, he has revealed himself to, the, to a degree that our suppression of the truth makes us accountable. So the problem is not that God hasn't revealed himself. The problem is that we've suppressed that truth. So God gives us revelation. In addition to natural revelation, he gives of himself in other ways. That is all that we've talked about thus far is kind of an example of common grace, right? Common grace. That's, that is God's grace that he gives to believers and unbelievers alike. He creates us. He sustains us. He reveals himself uh, through nature to us. That's true of believers and of unbelievers. But to believers in particular, God gives over and above these gifts of common grace. He gives what's called special grace. So you have common grace and you have special grace. You have natural revelation, then you have other forms of revelation, in particular what's called special revelation. And that's primarily found in God's gift of Scripture. The fact that God has given his word to you is a gift, as is salvation. Think of the language of our salvation and how often that's connected to the idea of God giving. Look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Notice there the language of giving, that God is rich in mercy, that he has done this by grace, unmerited favor, demerited favor. It talks about the riches of his grace. It talks about the gift of God, etc. So God gives us life. He gives us joy and salvation. But these things, life and joy, all those things, those are really means to an end. Those are means to the end. The greatest gift is not really in these blessings. Rather, the greatest demonstration of this special grace of God is seen in the fact that God gives himself. As John Piper says, the, greatest, uh, or the good news of the gospel is that you get God. And you actually see that, uh, that idea all over Scripture as well. Notice the language of the New Testament of God giving his Son and giving his Spirit to his people. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 10.45, the believers are, uh, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. John 3.16, we all know this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God gives... Not, a, not only salvation, but he gives himself to us. That's the real good news of the gospel, is that we get God. So God gives. God is generous. It's who he is. In fact, this is part of the reason why the doctrine of the Trinity is so 
uh, applicable and so important and practical for us because that uh, truth demonstrates how God could be eternally giving. The Father eternally begets the Son. The Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. And for eternity, they are giving each other glory and they're giving love and they're giving joy and fellowship. Apart from the Trinity, God couldn't actually be eternally giving. He would have needed something in order to give. He would have needed something outside of himself in order to give. But in light of the fact that God is this divine community, we can see how giving can be a fundamental aspect or attribute of his being. In fact, this helps explain how God not only gives, that's something that he does, but he delights to give because it's a part of his very nature. It flows forth from him. He is by nature gracious and kind. Look at uh, Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for to, to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Think about you, those of you who are parents. Think about the way that you love to make your children happy. Right? I love my children. I love to give them candy and toys and attention and hugs and kisses. That's natural to me. In my flesh, I think parents can all agree with this, but in my flesh there are moments where I'm not as eager to give them those things. But in general, this is a rather instinctual sort of response. And that same is true of God. He delights to give because it's who he is. He is giving. What he does flows out of who he is. That's not necessarily true of created beings. Right? We're deceptive. We're hypocritical and so forth. Again, there are times that I will give, even though I give begrudgingly. That's not the case for God. What you see is what you get when it comes to the Creator. All that He is perfectly overflows in what He does. So with that in mind, let's look at why it is that we should give. God gives. Why should we give? I'm going to give three primary reasons. The first one is to be like Him, to image Him. Again, one of the things that you have to grasp, uh, grasp, you have to cling to all semester long as we talk about discipleship is that discipleship is about being conformed to the image of Christ. Don't confuse the end with the means, all right? The end of discipleship isn't that you would stop looking at porn. It isn't that you would stop cursing. It isn't that you would stop getting drunk. It isn't that you would start reading the Bible or that you would start praying, or that you would start giving your money. Those are all good. You should do all those things, all right? But those are means to an end. The end is that you might be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the ultimate why behind everything we're talking about this semester. The goal of believers should be this, to be transformed by the gospel and thus glorify God in that transformation. Look at Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Luke 6.36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons that we should give is because, uh, is because doing so reflects the nature and character of Christ who is the perfect re reflection of God himself. That's the first reason that you should 
be generous, that you should give. The second reason is because God commands it. Matthew 5, 42. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. Next, which is Luke 12. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with the treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Acts 20, 35. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Or 2 Corinthians 8, 7. Read this within the context of 2 Corinthians 8. The concept... Uh, the context is the grace of giving to help others. The grace of giving to help others. It says, but as you excel in everything, in, fee- in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. That is the grace of giving to help others. So the Bible is clear. This is an expectation of God, that we follow his commands to give to others. So one motivation Forgiving should be simple, faithful obedience. God has commanded, and we should seek to obey him through the Spirit. And then a, a final one that I'll mention is as a spiritual discipline to mortify sin. This is something we've talked about a number of times. We'll continue to talk about it throughout this semester. But with, with each discipline, there are aspects of what historically has been called uh, vivification and mortification. Aspects we are making alive The new man, that's vivification, and putting to death the old man, that is uh, mortification. So, for uh, for example, when we read Scripture, we're engaging the living God, that's vivification, but we're also, in that moment, crucifying our desire for sleep or entertainment or whatever it might be. That's mortification. So that's part of the benefit of the discipline uh, is the discipline itself. That discipline smothers sin. It smothers vice. And that's certainly the case when it comes to the discipline of giving. When it comes to wealth, when it comes to money, and all the things that the Bible says about it, there are these two competing images that Scripture gives. Wealth is seen as both a gift and also as a peril or danger. And we're, we're intended to not use one of those to the neglect of others. If you concentrated on just being a gift and you never think about it being a peril or danger... You're not being faithful. But on the other hand, if you swing the pendulum the other way, you're not being faithful. Think of the story of the rich young man, right? His great wealth is seen as this uh, obstacle to discipleship. He goes away sad because he refuses to part with his possessions. Or the parable of the sower and the soil, where some seed grows, but it's choked out, quote, by the care and riches and pleasures of life. Or look at 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we have brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Or Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew 6, 19 through 20. By the way, Hebrews 13 doesn't mean you can't ever ask for a raise or something like that. All right? They're not living in a culture where there is you know, hyperinflation or something. 
Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not uh, lay up for yourselves treasures uh, on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So is the Bible saying that money is bad? No, it's not saying that, but it is saying that it's dangerous. Right? Think of a gun. A gun in the right hands, it's a gift. It provides a degree of comfort, it provides a degree of security and safety, but in the wrong hands, it provides destruction. And the same is true of money. Money, from a biblical perspective, is not merely neutral. It has power, it has influence, it has a trajectory, it has this gravitational pull, and that gravitational pull is really difficult to escape. That's why Jesus would say it's really hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. So giving is a means by which we exercise our spiritual muscles that we might flee from temptation, that we might flee from the temptation to assimilate into a culture which always desires bigger and better and so forth. So giving is this means by which we mortify sin. Every single one of us in this room struggles with lust. I don't just mean sexual lust. I mean lust for more. It's expressed in different ways in each of our lives. But that fundamental truth is true of every single one of us in this room because we are depraved, at least in the old man, the residue of the flesh that we still have. So giving is a, is a way to mortify that. We, we crucify the desire for bigger and better. We put to death this tendency to trust our wealth rather than trusting God. We, we kill the inclination to view life as primarily about ourselves or to view life as primarily about this temporal life that we have and we, we instead begin to think more eternally, and we begin to love and serve others rather than just loving and serving ourselves. Historically, sin has been described as mankind incurvatus in se. It's a Latin phrase. I probably mispronounced it because I don't speak Latin. But it means turned inward. If you want to know what sin is, sin is the process by which your affections and your attention is turned inward. That's what sin ultimately is. It's ultimately a disposition towards self-love. Right? Historically, biblically, we should be loving God and loving others. Our attention, our affection should be turned outwards, but instead sin turns it inwards. Right? It, it twists, it distorts our love so that we're just concerned with ourselves. So giving is this means of taking, you remember the jaws of life? that like firemen have to open up a door that's been crushed inward. That's what giving is. It's this means of taking the jaws of life to our hearts. It redirects our attention, reorients our affection outward toward God and others. So that's at least a few reasons that we should give, to image God, to obey Him, and to mortify sin. Let's talk about to whom should I give? All right, we've seen that we should give. We've seen why we should give. So now we should contemplate to whom we should give. All right, do we, do we just simply give to whoever is in front of us at the moment? Do we just give to our immediate family or to the charity of our choice? I'm going to give a few categories. I'm not going to spend as much time on each of them. The first one is family. Scripture is really clear. Someone who doesn't support their family is, quote, worse than an unbeliever. So that's big. You should be giving to your family, 
That's your immediate family, but it also include your uh, extended family. You have an expectation in scriptures that you would take care of widows and orphans in your family, that you would take care of your older parents when they get older or whatever it might be. Second, friends and neighbors, right? There's lots of ways that you can give to help them. We talked about them when we talked about serving. You can give your time by helping paint a fence, give your money by hosting a weekly dinner, whatever it, uh, it might be. Third, uh, orphans and, uh, and widows. Again, that's a huge biblical category. James actually calls this pure and undefiled religion. And that category would also include uh, people who are oppressed, people who are impoverished, especially those who are impoverished for righteous reasons. There's difference in Scripture between being impoverished because of some foolish mistake that you, or, or some foolish thing that you did versus something that was beyond your control. But biblically, taking care of the poor is more of a responsibility of the individual than it is for the government or than it is for even the church as a whole. In fact, the Bible explicitly talks about individuals caring individually for widows so that, quote, the whole church wouldn't be burdened. So you have orphans, you have widows, you have the oppressed, you have the poor. You also have things like parachurch ministries, nonprofits, charities, and so forth. You have missionaries. And then lastly, you have the local church. Those are all of these different categories that you could give to. There's probably other categories as well. But I want to, t- I want to spend most of our time on this final category of the local church, not because it's necessarily the most important, not because it's just self-serving because I happen to be paid, but rather because it's the one that I think is probably most often misunderstood in the American church today, maybe even misunderstood by some of you. A lot of people kind of uh, have the idea that all that really matters is that you give. It doesn't really matter all that much where you give. So I think a lot of Christians are probably giving fairly generously all over the place without really recognizing they have a biblical responsibility, they have a biblical priority to prioritize the local church. All right? Again, I realize that might sound self-serving, since surprise, I'm paid. But hear me out. Let me give three arguments for why Christians should give, not just generically. Yes, you should give generically but also specifically to the local church. Three arguments. Number one is the Old Testament principle of giving. We'll talk about this a little bit. We talk about tithing later. But Jews under the Mosaic law were required to give some of their harvests, some of their animals, and so forth, to support the temple and priests within Israel. Why was that required? Because uh, priests are busy doing priest stuff, right? Whatever it is that priests do, that's what they were doing. They're offering sacrifices, They're praying, they're interceding for the people. And they're so busy doing these things, they don't have time to hunt. They don't have time to plow their fields. They don't have time to harvest crops. They don't have time to do some other means of earning income. But these men had bellies to fill. They had families that required shelter. And so the tithe, this giving in Israel, was a way that the nation of Israel recognized that they had a collective responsibility to help those who serve the body. So that pattern is really instructive when we think about the church today. After all, the church isn't a corporation. Churches don't, or at least most of them don't, generally sell goods or uh, play the stock market. Most of them don't have an endowment or some sort of trust fund. Most churches survive 
as a result of God's grace through his people. Right? Churches have expenses, right? There's staff to pay. There's benevolence funds to distribute. There's mortgage payments. There's electricity and water bills. There's administrative costs. There's church insurance. There's building repairs. There's missionary support. There's future church planning endeavors. And on and on we could go. The first century church didn't necessarily own buildings, thus they didn't have some of the same expenses that many churches have today. But the closest parallel that we would have would be to the Old Testament temple. A second reason that you should give to the Old Testament church, these are implicit evidences, is the explicit command to financially support those who vocationally labor in ministry. Again, this is going to seem self-serving, but it's perhaps the most clear, the most compelling biblical case for that Christians should not just give in general, but they should give specifically to a local church. In, in a lot of ways, this, is, this argument is the closest we come to an explicit command that Christians should give specifically to their local church. So it would be unfaithful to just ignore it because someone might misunderstand me. Consider the following passages. 1 Corinthians 9, 7 through 11. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Look at Galatians 6.6. 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Right? Read that in the context of the Old Testament. You see part of what sharing all good things means is sharing of your crops and your, uh, you know, your uh, harvest and your animals and, and all of these sorts of things. First Timothy 5, 17 through 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. So what do all of these passages have in common? They have in common this call to physically, to financially support those who preach and teach and lead you spiritually. That's a command of Scripture. Now, obviously, we all know, again, you see it on TV and all the time, we all know that there's, there's some who would call themselves pastors, some who would call themselves teachers who have abused these passages. One of the things we need to, to bear in mind is that abuse doesn't somehow negate proper use. That abuse of these passages doesn't somehow nullify the proper interpretation of the passages. It doesn't negate your responsibility to actually carry out what the Bible says here. You have some degree of choice in which pastors and which teachers you choose to support according to the choice that you have of which church to join. But whether you support them or not, isn't really up to you. God hasn't left that up to you. Scripture is clear that those who shepherd the flock are not to be lovers of money. However, that doesn't mean that pastors should be destitute, that they should take vows of poverty. That's this unfortunate reaction that I've seen to the prosperity gospel. Oftentimes we kind of swing the pendulum from what's called the prosperity gospel to this new thing called the poverty gospel. That's where we kind of deny the idea that you should ever enjoy God's good gifts. 
right? At the end of the day, if Tim or if Jared decide they want to live below their means, live well below their means, that's on them. But it's not my job as their boss, and it's not your job as their flock to uh, force that, to make that decision for them. Our job is to bless them. Our job is to follow out what Scripture says, which is the laborer deserves his wages. Right? Again, church staff members are rather like you. They have families. We have mortgages, bills, insurance, retirement, and so forth. So some might choose to forsake certain rights. Paul even talks about that in 1 Corinthians, that he forsakes certain rights as an apostle. That doesn't, though, negate the right. Notice it says the laborer deserves his wages. So giving specifically to the local church fulfills this biblical command this expectation that the members of the body would collectively love and support those who labor for the good of the body and its various members. So in short, what the Bible is saying is that it commands Christians to give where they are fed and where they are led. Sorry that that rhymes, all right? They're to give where they are fed and led. Now, that can include other ministries. Right? Perhaps you, you support a former pastor, Perhaps you've really benefited from the work of Tim Keller or John Piper or, or, or R.C. Sproul, and so you want to give to Desiring God or Ligonier or whatever it might be. You're absolutely free to do that. That's an excellent way to support the expansion of the kingdom. However, such giving, I think, biblically should be a supplement to the giving to the local church, not a substitute for it. Your, your responsibility is first and foremost to your own local church and those who actually know you uh, and seek to shepherd you and not just kind of feed you with the masses from afar. Third argument for giving to the local church is the pattern of the early church, the pooling of resources, and the opportunity for benevolence. Think back to uh, Acts chapter 4. There was a problem in the early church. Many people were impoverished. Many people were in need of help. So you see this beautiful outpouring of support. What was the response of the church? Believers are selling their possessions, and they're selling their possessions in order to support others. But what's really interesting is that the Bible describes the way they were going about supporting the poor. In Acts 4, 32 through 37, it says that they were selling their goods and taking the proceeds and laying them where? Anybody remember? At the apostles' feet. In other words, there was this clear pattern of individual Christians feeling this responsibility to help, so they're relinquishing control of their funds and they're entrusting it to the care of the leaders who are responsible for the flock as a whole. Now, this is part of the reason why, by the way, many churches discourage uh, designated gifts whereby someone gives, but they, they kind of tether that gift to a particular need. I'm only going to give if you, uh, you know, put it in this particular budget item or something like that. That's also why the IRS doesn't consider those kinds of gifts to be tax-deductible. What does this have to do with Parkway? Well, your giving doesn't just provide my salary, Jared's salary, and Carl's salary. It provides money for lights and microphones. It provides learning materials so that others can hear the gospel. It provides the paper that you're reading, the little handouts there. Right? That benefits the entire congregation. It provides benevolence funds to help meet urgent needs. Right? We have that as a line item in our budget so that if someone loses their job and they need some help or someone needs groceries or whatever it might be, we can actually step up and meet that need. It provides funds 
to hopefully be directed towards church planning and missions. There are dozens and dozens of needs that your giving actually meets. Why can't you just give directly, uh, directly to those needs? Some you can and you should. All right, we already talked about, Paul talks about the difference between widows being cared for individually and others being a burden to the entire church. So you can meet lots of needs individually and you should. But if that was all we did, I think there would be dozens of needs that actually fell through the cracks. So by giving directly to the local church, the distribution of funds is better enabled by elders or staff members who probably have a somewhat more comprehensive uh, view and understanding of the needs of the body as a whole. Right? The leaders in the church generally are more aware of who's sick and who's lost their job and other needs. So giving specifically to the church allows for that. Think of the image of building a house. That's an image we've seen throughout 1 Corinthians. Right? The, the church is compared to a building, and our job is to build up that Building. So think of this image of building a house. What if you're building a house and every day workers just show up and they brought whatever they wanted to do that day? All right. So one day everyone shows up and they, everyone brought shingles. And they're like, oh, man, we have a lot of shingles. We don't have any drywall. We don't have any hammers. We don't have any screws. We don't have any boards. Right? Was that a healthy, good way to build a house? Absolutely not, right? What do you need? You need some sort of contractor. You need an overseer. By the way, that's another name for elders in Scripture. So by giving to the local church, you allow the overseers to actually oversee. Right? Here's the thing. If you can't tra- trust your pastors with your giving, you probably can't d- trust them with your discipleship either. All right? So for at least these reasons, it seems good and faithful for believers to prioritize not merely giving in general, but giving to the particular church to which they belong. Right? You're encouraged, you're absolutely encouraged to give toward other ministries, to give towards missionaries, to give toward other individuals. But that giving shouldn't be to the neglect of this primary priority that you see in Scripture of giving to the local church. Giving a regular set amount to your local church is a healthy and helpful principle. But how much should you give? Anytime you talk about giving, you got to talk about tithing, all right? Anytime you talk about tithing, people feel like it's a drive-by guilting. What's a tithe? A tithe is a giving of 10%. It was commanded by God in the Mosaic Law. The word tithe is actually derived from the word for tenth, which means technically if you're giving 9% or you're giving 11%, you're not actually giving a tithe because tithe means tenth. And you see that example of giving 10% throughout Scripture. In fact, even before the Mosaic Law, Israel's forefathers practiced that sort of tradition. But it was, at that point, it was merely described rather than prescribed. The tithe, as this command for Israel, was not given until Sinai. That's the Mosaic Law. But even then, it wasn't as simple as really just giving 10% and then you're done. In fact, Old Testament giving was really diverse. Israel was to give sacrifices, it was to give free will offerings, it was to give a redemption gift for their firstborn of children and animals, it was to pay various taxes, among other things. So the 10% tithe on your harvest and flock was simply one aspect of this diverse giving required under the Mosaic Law. In fact, some estimate that as much as 25% of your income was actually required when you take all of these gifts into account. 
And though I don't remember many uh, sermons from my childhood, I didn't really pay attention, I vividly remember Malachi 3, 8 through 10. Right? If you fail to give a tithe, you're stealing from God. That was thievery, I was told. But is that actually the case? Is 10% still required and is it expected? Let's look at the New Testament. Unfortunately, the New Testament doesn't really say much about tithing explicitly. In fact, tithing is only mentioned a handful of times. And it's never actually mentioned as a command. So is it still commanded? Or has Christ's life and death revised our understanding of God's expectation for our giving? I think the answer is that the tithe is no longer this binding command and that the new covenant holds us to a different standard. Notice I didn't say lesser standard. I said a different standard. As with each and every element of the old covenant... We must read that element through gospel-informed lenses. We don't live in ancient Israel. And thus we shouldn't just apply the prescriptions of the Old, uh, old Covenant literally as if, we're, as if we're still living under the jurisdiction of the Old Covenant, under the jurisdiction of the Mosaic Law. We shouldn't put new wine in old wineskins. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ has fundamentally transformed how believers are to relate to the law. We're no longer forbidden from marrying foreigners like ancient Israel. We are forbidden from marrying unbelievers. We're no longer required to offer sacrifices. We are required to offer ourselves as sacrifices. Food, which was previously forbidden, like bacon and shrimp, is now allowed. Circumcision, which was previously commanded, is no longer obligatory. Even the Sabbath is no longer mandatory. So if the gospel changes how we think about eating and drinking and resting... And then surely it should also change the way that we think about giving. Right? If, we're, if we're no longer under the old covenant, if we're no longer under the Mosaic law, then we're no longer under the law of the tithe. That doesn't mean we shouldn't give. We may not be under the law of Moses, but we're still under the law of Christ. And Christ commands us to love God and love our neighbor with everything, which includes your bank accounts and your credit cards. So Jesus changes everything by exposing our motivation and intent. Think of the Sermon on the Mount and how often Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So think about that in this instance. It's like Christ is whispering in this. You've heard that it was said, give 10%, but I say to you. And if you fill in the blank there, it's probably not a lesser standard. It's probably a higher standard. That's what you see throughout the Sermon on the Mount. This is where we need to think like Christians and not like legalists. And I think any time we even ask the question, how much should I give? We're actually kind of asking that question as legalists. Answering that question really depends a lot on who you are. Are you a multimillionaire? Are you a single mom? Are you a struggling college student? Are you recently laid off from work? There is no one-size-fits-all approach. That's what we want. Right? We want that because we're rule followers. We're legalists deep down. But in reality, there's not a rule. There's not a law. It demands wisdom instead. We don't like that. We don't like that freedom. Some people should probably be giving a whole lot more than 10%. Others might legitimately for no, uh, uh, with no sort of um, negative uh, on them, some people actually can't afford to give 10%. Others should downgrade their lifestyle, so they should give more. Studies by the Southern Baptist uh, Convention recently suggest that the average churchgoer today gives about 3.4%. What's really fascinating about that number 
is that it is 21% less than the typical churchgoer gave during the Great Depression. That suggests that the primary reason that people don't give isn't primarily circumstances of life. Right? You might be a little bit upset by inflation and so forth now, but we're not actually in the midst of the 20s depression. All right? Yeah. So it's not circumstances of life that's really driving this number. It's really the, uh, the choices of the heart. Less than 5% of regular attendees of a church give at least 10% of their income. Now, it's certainly true. 10% is not a universally binding command. Some people, because of the circumstances of their life, Maybe they can only give 3.4%. Maybe they can only give 1% or 2% or 5% or whatever it might be. They shouldn't be ashamed if they're unable to give as much as they may want. But that's the key thing. There's a world of difference between not being able to give as much as you want and not giving as much as you can. It's a huge difference. So when we're thinking about this through gospel lenses, we shouldn't think of giving as a mere responsibility, but rather as an opportunity. And if you're thinking of this as an opportunity, 10% shouldn't be your goal, right? After all, some people, because of the circumstances of their life, because the way that God has blessed them, they should be giving far more than 10%. But all of us should continue to think through how we can afford to give more and more and pray earnestly for the grace to give even beyond our current means, as 2 Corinthians talks about. So I'll give you a principle. This is not a law. It's a starting point. Here's what I would recommend. I would recommend that everyone... Try to give at least 10% to the local church and then have a separate goal of giving to other ministries and missionaries and so forth. And then you make it a goal to increase those percentages as you're able. You get a 10% raise at work, maybe 1% of that goes toward um, uh, your giving. Again, not a law, but that's, I think, a wise application of the biblical data. That said, I want to give you some principles to develop your own sort of standards and how you think through giving, all right? So let's talk about some practicals about how to give. How should you give? A bunch of adverbs here, seven adverbs. One, you should give generously. 2 Corinthians 8, 3 through 4, for they give according to their means, and as I can testify, notice this, and beyond their means of their own accord. Think back to that uh, Acts uh, 4 example. They're selling their belongings and laying the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Second Corinthians, they're giving beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Is that how you think of giving? Right? If you're desiring a challenging, convicting, encouraging theology of giving, I think you should start by reading and then rereading 2 Corinthians 8 through 9. If you really want to grasp the heart, like Paul's pastoral heart of giving, Read those chapters and then read them again and then read them again until you feel the weight of them. Not just the God loves the cheerful giver section, but the whole thing. Right? The, the Macedonians are giving generously. They're giving beyond their means. They're begging for the favor of doing so. And then Paul commands us that we should also excel in this act of grace. That's a command. That's a radical giving. That's not just throwing some pocket, pocket change in the giving box. As you leave. Next, give cheerfully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There is a reward that you see in Scripture for giving, but that reward is really tied, it's dependent upon a heart 
that's free from the lust for temporal rewards of this earth. So gospel giving, uh, giving is, is cheerful. It's voluntary. It, it is this idea that every deposit uh, won't be in vain, that it will, it will earn eternal interest. Now, the Bible would say if you, can't give gener- uh, if you can't give cheerfully, you should give anyway. We've talked about that a number of times as we talk about spiritual disciplines. We shouldn't in, uh, compound one sin with another sin. You shouldn't compound the internal sin of begrudging giving with the external sin of not giving. So give anyway, even if you can't give cheerfully. But as you do, you should confess. You should confess that your heart isn't in the right place. You should seek counsel on why there's this disconnect between your heart and the gospel. You should pray for joy and you should walk in repentance. Next, give sacrificially. 1 John 3, 16 through 17. But we, uh, by this we know that uh, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God love, God's love abide in him? This is probably one of the most underappreciated and underapplied principles for Christian giving today. That is that uh, giving inherently inconveniences us. The flesh is quick to offer excuses and justification, but the gospel calls us to this deep and radical sacrifice. First John, the apostle exhorts the church to care for brothers in need as an overflow and implication of gospel love. That's the type of love that lays down one's life for another, right? David uh, in the Old Testament says he refuses to give a gift that would cost him nothing. And yet if we're not careful, we're in danger of doing that very thing many times. So do we actually give to the point that we feel it? Does it actually inconvenience us? Does the call to take up our cross not also carry the charge to lay down our checkbooks? Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis on this. From uh, Mere Christianity, he wrote, One more point and I am done. In the passage where the New Testament says that everyone must work, it gives us a reason in order that he may have something to give to those in need. Charity that is given to the poor is an essential part of Christian morality. In the frightening parable of the sheep and the goats, it seems to be the point on which everything turns. Some people nowadays say that charity ought to be unnecessary and that instead instead of giving to the poor, we ought to be producing a society in which there were no poor to give to. They may be quite right in saying that we ought to produce that kind of society, but if anyone thinks that as a consequence, you can stop giving in the meantime, then he has parted company with all Christian morality. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charities' expenditure excludes them. I'm speaking now of charities in the common way, particular cases of distress among your own relatives, friends, neighbors, or employees, which God, as it were, forces upon your notice, may demand much more, even to the crippling and endangering of your own position. For many of us, the great obstacle to charity lies not in our luxurious living or desire for more money, but in our fear, fear of insecurity. This must often be recognized as a temptation. Sometimes our pride also hinders our charity. We are tempted to spend more than we ought on the showy forms of generosity, like tipping and hospitality, and less than we ought on those who really need our help. This is a chipper little talk, isn't it? 
Next, give spontaneously. Titus 3.14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Right? I think that a heart that is freed by the gospel, a heart that longs to be generous, a heart that sees the generosity of God and longs to imitate him, doesn't just wait for opportunities to give. It looks for it. It intentionally seeks them out. I think gospel giving looks for chances to bless others and listens to the needs of those near and far. Gospel generosity gives to those who beg. It even risks that the gift might not be used properly. That doesn't mean that it's not sometimes righteous and wise to occasionally refuse to give at a particular circumstance. But those walking in light of the gospel should engage in good good, uh, deeds to meet pressing needs anytime and anywhere they arise. But our giving shouldn't just be spontaneous. It should also be regular. We'll talk about this passage later uh, today. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that they may be no collecting when I come. Jared's actually going to talk about that in the sermon. So you should give as needs arise, but you should also be consistent. This should be a discipline. This should be a regular habit of giving. Right? Your giving in Scripture, in the Sermon on the Mount, is linked with prayer and fasting. And those things as well contain some element of discipline and regularity. Right? So you should give not only spontaneously, but also consistently and regularly. Six, you should give secretly. Matthew 6, I won't read it for the sake of time. You're familiar with that passage. I don't think that Jesus there is necessarily intending for us to seem that you see in you know, John Doe or something. But there is this general theme that you see in Scripture of secret giving, secret giving for the sake of eternal reward. The flesh craves the praise of man. We read this uh, when we talked about uh, serving, that your your flesh kind of whines uh, against uh, serving, but it screams against secret serving, and the same is true with giving. Your flesh whines against the idea of giving, But when you compound that by giving in secret, you don't get any praise for it. Your flesh screams against that. This is another way that you mortify that desire. And then lastly, give thankfully. I apologize. We're going to run out of time and not have time for questions. 2 Corinthians 9, 10 through 12. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So grace, the grace that we have received, is the basis for our gratitude. As we who have received grace, we should gracefully extend it to others. Think about the, the story that Jesus tells of the unforgiving servant, this guy who was forgiven this great debt, and he had a relatively small debt, and he refused to extend the same mercy that he had received. Grace should be something that compels us to be gracious. We are to imitate him. We are to mirror God in that. We should be thankful. Yes, absolutely. We're actually going to talk about gratitude as being a spiritual discipline, Uh, here in a few weeks. We should be thankful not only for what we have, not only for what we've been given. We should also be grateful 
for the grace and faith and love and the opportunity that we have to give to others. Right? Giving should not be like reluctantly writing a check to pay another bill. Nobody ever loves that. You get a bill from the hospital that you didn't know that you hadn't paid. Nobody ever thinks, man, I love this. I'm so grateful that that came in the mail today. That's begrudging, right? That shouldn't be how we think of giving. It should be this earnest, this eager exercise to invest in the kingdom of God by mirroring his generosity and grace. Not just giving to the local church, but giving to your neighbors and friends and family and missionaries and ministries and on and on we could go. There is no lack of opportunities for you to give. Christians growing in grace should be marked by this growing, this growth in their giving. They should be marked by growing in generosity and cheerfulness and sacrifice and spontaneity and regularity and secrecy and gratitude. Where you're giving is lacking any of these attributes. I'm not saying you should be ashamed. I'm saying you should repent. You should recognize there is a little bit of hole in your understanding, a little deficiency in your understanding of giving. This is an opportunity for you to repent, for you to confess, for you to ask God to help you, for you to have an opportunity to learn and grow and experience far greater joy and freedom. If you understand the gospel, it compels you to give. It confronts our tendency toward pride, toward greed, toward control, toward comfort, toward convenience. It offers us joy. It offers us freedom. It offers us greater reward. Giving is this beautiful picture of responsibility and opportunity mingled together for the glory of God and the joy of his people. So I think if you're thinking about this from a biblical perspective, your choice of a job or your choice of what to do with that next raise or that bonus, that provides this glorious opportunity for you to further advance the gospel. What if rather than buying the bigger house, you did that? What if rather than upgrading on your car, you did that? What if where you ate, what if where you traveled, not just you but me, this is convicting to me, what if what you wore, what you drove, what if all of these things were actually filtered through kingdom lenses and you sought not to just to give 10%, but 25% or 50% or more? Those aren't just rhetorical, hypothetical questions. Those scenarios aren't actually impossible or insane. I've actually known people who have given away 50% of their income. Right? That, that doesn't represent the circumstances of every Christian in this room. For some of us, that would crush us. But there certainly should be the cry of every Christian's heart. If there's something in you that's like, I don't even desire that, there's something wrong there. And I think you should wrestle with that is. So here's the application for today. Are you giving generously? Are you giving cheerfully? Are you giving sacrificially? Are you giving spontaneously? Are you giving regularly? Are you giving secretly? Are you giving thankfully? Are you giving to meet pressing needs? Are you giving regularly to the local church? Are you giving to support others, friends, families, orphans, widows, and so forth? That's it. Let's pray. Father, I confess this is a, a, a hard a topic to teach on. It's so, uh, it's so easy just to try to induce people to feel guilt and, uh, and that lasts for a week or two weeks or three weeks and then eventually it turns into bitterness or it just dissipates. So I pray instead that you would uh, bring about convict uh, conviction. I pray that you would
not just compel us by a law or a command, but that you would compel us by a, a picture, a vision of glory, of joy, of hope, of life, that you would uh, encourage us to be more like you, you who just give. And so I pray that we would be, again, a people